Before we get into the final programme of the series, I wanted to ask for your help with a couple of things. To make a real difference to education for those from the less advantaged postcodes, we need as many people to hear this series as possible. You've already been brilliant at sharing online, so please continue with that, but I'd like to ask you to go a step further. Real success will come from people who might not consider listening to this hearing it, so if you know some people like this, gently push them in the right direction. They might be friends, family, co-workers, policy writers, anyone who could become an ally. And if you haven't already, please leave a rating and review, and make sure you're signed up to our newsletter, Twitter and Instagram for updates. You can find all of the links at classdivide.co.uk. And finally, Class Divide wouldn't exist without the Crew Club in Whitehawk. They spent decades plugging many of the gaps you've heard about over the last few months, and they need all the support they can get. Head over to crewclub.co.uk and hit the donate button if you're able to do so. I'm Curtis James and you're listening to Class Divide. We're back where we began, on the estate where Dr Carly Goldsmith and me grew up in Brighton. And we've returned to the place that inspired our campaign. So we're walking towards the Crew Club and I, I wanted to ask you, Carly, about your memory of the Crew Club and sort of how it started and you know how important it is for the community. There was a big group of young people that used to hang out together that were kind of known as the Bench Boys. So they'd hang out on a bench by the middle shops and one night, just horribly, one of them was stabbed and died. And at that point, it was clear that for that group, there wasn't really anywhere that they could congregate where they would be safe. This is the last episode in the series and I wanted to end with positive ideas that will give us hope for the future of education in this country, that show us a path to equal education and opportunity for all children across the UK. But sometimes hope emerges from the darkest of places, as it did at the Crew Club, the community centre for children, young people and their families, in Whitehawk in Brighton. It was here that the murder of a young boy nearly 30 years ago inspired something special, a place of hope. By the end of this episode, I want to share some ideas that won't need more tragedies to make them happen. They'll just need people to put aside their prejudices name and accept privilege and advantage where it exists, and consider the collective responsibility of a town, a city, to nurture and support young people, irrespective of their postcode or background. Let's rejoin Carly back in Whitehawk. Lorraine and Darren, who were family friends, and another parent, Barbara Draper, really wanted to set up a place where this particular group of young people could go and be safe, essentially. They'd lost their mate, they'd lost him in a very public way on the streets of the neighbourhood that they lived in. A lot of them were out with him that night. Some of them actually saw the incident, so there was a lot of fear and uncertainty amongst that group, but also not a lot of recognition that this had happened to them, really. They were just teenagers. We're standing here right outside the crew club now, but wafting sort of over the field is the sound of all the kids from City Academy, Academy. in Whitehall. Yeah. Hearing what sounds like them having some fun times in the playground, and I think about what we're trying to do at Class Divide, and mm. I guess it's obvious to say how important it is that, that we're doing the stuff we're doing here. I think part of the reason why I can't leave the crew club is because of that sound. 
I know how much learning enriches my life and what it means to me. And I just want them to have the same chance and the same opportunity. And I know they don't at the moment and it's something that makes me really angry. And so that's sort of why we do Classified and that's sort of why I'm very attached to the crew club and to this community. In this series, I've been shining a light on how kids who grow up on council estates like I did are too often consigned to the UK's worst performing schools. It's a kind of caste system with catchment areas and admission rules segregating families who can afford the higher house prices around good schools from those who can't and are pushed to the fringes. This is where cycles of poverty repeat generation after generation. At Class Divide, we believe all children, regardless of their background, deserve an equal start in school, that every child deserves equal access to opportunities. You've heard in the last episode how activists like us in Brighton and across the UK are fighting to paper over the cracks in our communities. But in this episode, we're thinking bigger and braver, because as it stands, according to educationalist Dr Chris Bagley, the whole system is broken. In my opinion, some people disagree with me here, it doesn't matter what you do with schooling to try and, shall we say, minimise inequality and reduce the disadvantage gap because the disadvantage gap is built in. It's supposed to be there. And it's literally impossible for working class children who have less educated parents, less resources, less social capital, less books, less space in their home to do their work, less conversations going on using rich language, to get to the same academic level as middle-class and upper-class children. It's not possible because the things that they might be relatively skilled at or good at, things that are around them that inspire them in their family, don't exist in schools and they have one option really and that is to become more like the richer kids. So the only way to achieve in our school system is to become something you're not, shun your own identity and learn in a way that A, hasn't been inculcated in you, B, you might not want and C is possibly not very motivating. So the system basically says to young people, if you don't succeed, it's your fault. And families often get blamed as well, don't they? With absolutely no consideration of the systemic factors or the history of education that has built the system into this edifice that was deliberately designed to block very specific students out. And it's always been the same students. We've won the idea of education for all being a thing, but that's about all we've won. What has not changed really is what education is and what education is for. And what it is, arguably, is a system of credentialing and social sifting that was deliberately designed to exclude some. And what it's for, in my opinion, and this is very much an unconscious belief, is essentially controlling society in a way that recreates a very similar pattern of success and failure. So what could school look like if it was fixed? What happens if it isn't hopeless? You have to disrupt the whole of the way the English system is set up. I think it is possible because other countries have proved that they can do it better. For us, education is a human right. It's not a commodity. It's not something that you can only purchase if you are wealthy. So only children from rich families are entitled to quality education. We think it's a human right belonging to everyone. In this final episode of the series, we're going on a journey that takes us to Finland into questions of social mobility, society and the very purpose of education. And we're looking locally 
at how people are plugging the gaps, helping each other, volunteering their time, and trying to change the lives and outcomes of children growing up on estates. But first, we're going to head to the north of England. We do presentations of learning where you talk in front of 250 people, you know, your parents and people from the community, and we expect everyone to do that. There was a laddie called uh, Anthony Lee, and Anthony would not talk in class. Our first presentation of learning, we found him cowering under a table in year seven, but we worked with him. A few months ago, I was coming into school and he went, hey, sir, and it was Anthony, and he'd come back and he's at university and he's doing music technology, and he was proud to be telling me he'd just been working with the Royal Philharmonic. And that's a kid from Donny who could not speak, now flourishing. And we have just tons of stories like that. I do not know what his qualifications are, and I do not care. I care about Anthony. I'm at the XP School in Doncaster with Gwyn Apari, CEO of the XP School Trust. They do things a bit differently here. Kids learn by going on expeditions. Character development is key. Subjects are not taught in isolation, but they cross-fertilise in purpose-led projects. With an admissions policy that allows anyone from Doncaster to apply, the school says it's at the heart of the community. Kids are encouraged to believe they can make the world a better place. And the motto is, above all, compassion. And it's been called the school of the future. Gwyn learned about this approach to education in 2012 after hitching a ride with some friends to America to visit the school High Tech High and hearing them speak about design principles being at the core of the school's ethos. Gwyn spent the next few days of his trip working out how the school did what they did and whether he could make a similar thing happen in the UK. He made contact with Ron Berger, author and teacher of over 28 years and a big proponent of EL, or Expeditionary Learning. Ron invited Gwyn to spend some time in one of their 160 schools and two years later, in 2014, the first expeditionary learning school opened in Doncaster in the UK. Typically a child will turn up at the first day of Year 7 with 49 strangers. They get on a bus, they travel to Wales and Aberdovey where Outward Bound was created by Kurt Hahn and Lawrence Holt. And we ask the guiding question, what is crew? They drop all the stuff off at the Outward Bound Centre and they do what's called jog and dip. They jog down to the sea, they get in the sea with their 12 crew members and they dip their heads in the water. Then they go back up to the centre, get dry, they get given a big pack and they climb halfway up a mountain. They stay in log cabins or uh, tents and then the next day they summit the mountain together as a crew. And then they get back on the bus with 49 friends, and that's the start of their journey. So they learn what is crew, which is basically our community. It's our teamwork approach to school culture. And then really importantly, we do exactly the same things in the classroom. We talk about our character traits, we talk about our habits of work and learning, and we apply what we've learnt outward bound in our classroom. So we make that deep connection. And our kids never forget that experience. I know what that experience feels like because I recently joined the crew club and 12 kids from Whitehawk on an outward bounds week in the Lake District. 
I can totally see what a powerful experience that could be for kids starting a new school. Expeditions continue after that first trip to Wales, but in the classroom and other field trips. The school immerses students in experiences to help them learn. They visit coal mines to learn history and science, the Houses of Parliament to learn about the slave trade, and build a turbine to explore energy conversion, gravity and algebra. Design principles are a great way to solve problems and that's effectively what schools are doing. What do we want our kids to know when they leave us as adults? And in many ways, we don't really have our eye on the future, we have our eye on the past. We're probably the most traditional school there is because our kids learn stuff to create things. None of this progressive numbo-jumbo like uh, splitting knowledge up into subjects and only learning stuff to, to pass exams. That's far too progressive for us. As adults, we learn stuff to create things, whether it's physical products, whether it's new knowledge in our own heads, whether it's how to look after people. It's not very often when uh, our kids say, I don't know why I'm learning this, because they have a true purpose. Educating our kids is a human scale problem, so it needs a human scale solution. How could you create a solution to a problem which is about educating kids if you don't know the kids? Relationships are the foundation of what we do, the foundation of our culture. That's where we start and end with relationships. I can't help but think about Aaron, Asa, Ryan, me and my brother about what our experience could have been like if we'd been to a school like XP. We have visitors all the time in our schools. One of our children, she was asked a question, which was, you, you've got friends who go to other schools, right? What's the difference? <laughs> and she said, the difference is really that we come here and we're a community. They just go to school. That sort of really hits it. It's like, we're kind to each other. They feel like they belong. They feel like their work has purpose. They like the teachers because the teachers treat them with respect. Because respect is transactional and two-way. They work hard because they see the purpose. They like the fact that we don't just focus on academic performance. We focus on character growth and giving them opportunities to create beautiful work. There was a Times article that said the most radical school in the UK, right, about us. And I'm like, since when has being kind to kids become radical? That is more of a light on our society at the moment than, than us, really. All of this sounds utopian compared to my experience of school. Granted, that was over 30 years ago. But I was intrigued about how this fitted in with all of the official stuff like Ofsted. Most of the statutory stuff is okay. We want our kids to be able to read. We want our kids to have good behaviours. We want our kids to progress academically. For me, Ofsted requirements are a very low bar. And the only problem with Ofsted requirements aren't the requirements. It's the flaws in the human beings that are in that system who want to judge schools I've met people who are Ofsted inspectors who were fantastic people, have really high integrity, really rigorous, and I love people like that. It's the others that I don't. I am indifferent to them. 
Given all the challenges facing schools right now, I wanted to know what gets Gwyn out of bed every morning and where the drive comes from. It was a sense of not being able to do anything else. When I went to High Tech High, I couldn't go back and do the same thing that I was doing. I would have been, have been a charlatan. I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I didn't try and do something. Like people say, oh, you've got so much courage to do what you do. But you don't feel courageous or brave. You feel like there's nothing else you can do. You feel like it's inevitable. There was no risk in trying to do something that we thought would make the world a better place. I definitely feel some of that. I mean, I'm not running a school. You know, I'm just part of this campaign, right? We're a small campaign in a community. But I feel a little bit like once you see it, you can't unsee it and you can't not do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. It's like, it's an inevitability. I just imagine what I wanted school to be like when I was a kid and I'd do that. When you actually sit down and start doing, just doing things, it comes to you. It's not so hard. It's not so difficult. In fact, a lot of the times it's really obvious. If anyone listening feels completely energised by this and wants to chat about doing something similar in Whitehawk, let me know. But what about the emotional impact of setting up and running a school? Dude, right, me and Andy are punks from Doncaster, right? We grew up in the 70s and the 80s. We don't cry, yet we cry almost every bloody day. We just have to pretend that there's something in our eye. I cried this morning. <laughs> in a good way, right? Not a bad way. You just get really emotional when you see great work from adults who care deeply about kids and when you see the kids and hear the kids and how they respond and this work hard and important work it hits you it's very deep it's very visceral it's not a clever thing that we're doing it's really important and it makes us feel really really proud that we're doing this so what might be stopping more schools like xp developing across the country in the book About Our Schools, educationalists Sir Tim Brickhouse and curriculum expert Mick Waters divide the history of education into two eras. A post-war age of hope and optimism, followed by the age of markets, centralisation and managerialism, ushered in under Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. It's where we still are now, and our short-sighted political short-terminism is failing to deal with the urgent need for reform, says campaigner on school issues, Fiona Miller. The average shelf life of an education secretary is under two years. We've had three in the past week, so that gives you some clue as to why, even if somebody had a vision, you've got to be there to drive it through over a long period of time, and that's another problem with education policy. They come in, they do a few gimmicks and, you know, launches, and often it's a sort of stepping stone to something else. We've had a few who have been very determined, like Gove, obviously. I haven't disagree with what he did, but he was very determined and he got things done. On the whole, they're not very effective. And even if you have a vision, you can't drive through a strategy without a good leader. And let's not hold our best for the next couple of years because, you know, you're going to have very turbulent leadership in the country, let alone the Department of Education. So where does Fiona turn to a model for a fairer, more equitable school system? I mean, Canada, Finland, they got rid of independent schools and selective schools. They have higher equity and quality and quality, higher standards and, and, and narrower gap, Canada, Singapore. It can be done. 
but they tend to be countries with newer education systems and less class-ridden societies. In the case of Finland, they took a, a very brave decision in the 1970s to just ditch the whole private selective school thing and start all over again with a fully comprehensive model and, and, and a massive investment in the quality of teaching. Teachers are highly educated, all have master's degree, and so it doesn't really matter to which school you go. That's Johanna Jarvivan-Talbert, an ex-teacher from Finland, who now supports and trains teachers in other countries for the company LearningScope. We have a saying in Finland that the nearest school is the best school. And that refers to the fact that all schools basically are about the same quality. They all get the pretty much the same funding. They follow the national core curriculum. And in many sense, they are quite similar. Education is free of charge here in Finland. So, of course, it's funded by our tax money, but we don't have any tuition fees from the first grade to the higher education. So the idea is to provide equal quality education for everyone, regardless of their background, their social financial background, their ethnic background, or if they have any learning difficulties or challenges. Back in the 1970s, Finland made huge changes to its education system, meaning parents had no choice but to send their children to a local school, and private schools were abolished. It caused actually a lot of debate, and and, uh, many people were very sceptical about this new system and thought that we are ruining the quality of education and it cannot work, and it was also a political issue at that time. After the education system was changed, it has not caused any big debate at all. So it's interesting that at the moment, no matter where you stand politically, people are actually very happy with the education system and nobody's asking for private schools and we need more options. And And where has this left Finland when it comes to international league tables? Finland has stayed among the, let's say, the 10 top countries for two decades in PISA results. PISA being one of the most followed international learning comparisons. And uh, since then, we have been near the top. But for Johanna, this isn't the measure of success. Success is that everyone gets an equal chance to, to reach their potential. That's the ideal. Of course, it's not that simple all the time, but that's what we are aiming for. Like the XP school in Doncaster, Finland also focuses on teaching life skills. Johanna told me they want their children to leave school with useful skills that will be needed in life and in the future. And this work begins in the early years of a child's life. What they call pre-primary education starts when a child is six. The early childhood education still is totally play-based in Finland. So it's completely non-academic. Children are introduced uh, basic numeracy and literacy, but for example, they are not expected to learn how to read and write. And uh, a lot of education outside classroom, basically every day. The idea for the six years old is to build a foundation for formal schooling. So when the children start the first grade, they already have the necessary skills and competencies, like how to be a 
good teammate, how to work in a group, how to listen to, to instructions, how to take turns, things like that, social and interactive skills and competencies. May sound strange, but we try to follow the scientific research and that has shown very clearly that it actually builds a very good foundation for future learning to let children play freely. They learn so much, also the basic skills that are useful later on. So the formal schooling starts at the age of seven. And at least to my knowledge, Finland is probably <laughs> one of the countries that starts the formal schooling so late. And what's remarkable is that they actually pick up the skill really quickly. At the age of seven, school days in Finland are relatively short. For the first graders, they are usually four hours per day. But that includes, as I said, <laughs> recesses, which are one of my favorite, favorite topics. We'll come back to Johanna's favorite topic in a moment. But before that, let's quickly hear about higher education, something we covered in episode five. Basic education ends at 18 in Finland, just like it does here in the UK. After basic education, students have basically two main options. It's either the upper secondary schools, which you could also call high schools, which are more academic choices. And then we have vocational education that provides more than 100 of different vocational trainings that uh, end up with, you end up with a profession and you're a qualified professional after that. The interesting feature in our education system is that both of these choices are highly respected. So very often people assume that, okay, every parent wants their children to go to high school. But it's not like that here in Finland. And I think the reason for that is that also vocational education is really high quality. Also, vocational education makes you eligible to continue your studies in higher education. So it doesn't restrict your choices after the secondary education. We have even professors in Finnish universities who have taken that route. It's free for Finnish residents living in Finland, but also for EU citizens. You can proceed up to, to the doctoral studies. You can do your PhD without any tuition fees. So it's, it's free of charge. Before we hit record, Johanna made it clear to me she didn't want to advise that she understands that different countries have different needs and different contexts. But there was one area she feels all countries should consider. More downtime, or what she calls recess time. In Finland, we actually have a law which requires that there has to be a recess after every 45 minutes lesson, and it's 15 minutes recess. And then you should have also one longer break during the school day. And that's how we try to make sure that students feel refreshed. They are able to concentrate during the lessons. They are ready to absorb new information and be actively involved in lessons activities. I went through research on breaks and recesses around the world. And it was astonishing even to me to realize how it's a unified result, no matter where it's done, that recesses promote learning hugely. 
teachers, they tell us all the time that they actually notice if somebody skipped a recess. They can see it when they cannot concentrate and they are feeling restless and they're not feeling well. My recommendation, and this is the only one, would be that think how recesses could be incorporated to your system, what would work for your students, because it's been scientifically proven that that really promotes learning. This all sounds so different to things I hear from teachers in UK schools. One told me breaks and downtime are kept to a minimum because research shows that students get into more trouble in those breaks. I guess it's a necessary sticking plaster over our creaking school system and low-paid and sometimes under-supported teachers, but one that looks as if, if Johanna is correct, could be doing more harm than good. We heard how intertwined housing and education are in episode 6 in relation to segregation and catchment areas. Johanna told me about an important policy that aims to stop the kind of social segregation we see in our cities and schools. Social cohesion is built into the fabric of society, including housing. The idea is that providing different type of accommodation in one area, we can make sure that there are also different type of families who can all afford to live in that area. And then we will have that mix in our schools, which we are trying to achieve. And that means that in the same class, there can be children from parents who are basically millionaires (laughs) sitting next to a child whose parent can be, for example, unemployed at the moment or having some health issues or coming from a very low-income family. And the idea is that these children, even though they have very different backgrounds, (laughs) even Even when we talk about equality, it doesn't mean that everyone in Finland has the same background, obviously. But they are there, they are friends, they work together, they play together, they get to know each other, they can be best friends. That is something that we really value. So me as a mother, I think that it's been one of the great uh, benefits of Finnish system that my children have got to know people from different backgrounds and understanding that not everyone gets the same opportunities based on on their background, but also they are all provided the same quality education and everyone is equal and it doesn't matter what's your background. We know each other and we understand that people come from different backgrounds and I think um, that has hindered all kind of segregation in our society and we see that as a strength in our country. Back at home here in the UK, there are so many projects gluing together the obvious cracks in society, having to pick up the pieces of our broken and unequal country. In the wider East Brighton, groups like the Crew Club, Park Life, East Brighton Food Cooperative, The Manor, Whitehawk FC, The Bevy and Moscone Forest Garden are all doing great things, sometimes without funding, to help people feel like they belong. In a joint mentoring project put together by Class Divide, East Brighton Trust, The Crew Club and Backer Secondary School, 
More than 40 adults from across Brighton and Hove are mentoring Year 7 students during that important transition from junior to secondary school, helping students to feel listened to and a sense of belonging. It's a great example of the city caring about the education of its young people. I spoke with the principal of Backer, Jack Davies, just before the project kicked off. I think sometimes we neglect being able to talk to somebody about yourself and especially about your aspiration and your future. And external mentors and that one-to-one -one small group mentoring will be so powerful for the students to have some time to reflect about themselves, to look at the journeys that they are on and then to start looking at their aspiration and how they can move forward, not just with school, but also with the next stages of their lives, whether it can be talking through personal issues, talking through career aspirations, but also asking questions to other professionals or other members of the community who are local. This is a pilot programme, but Jack hopes to add a mentor group for Year 11s as well. So we're really then focusing on both ends of the spectrum. We're looking at that transition, that journey into secondary school, but then we're also looking at that journey through the examination series, but also the next steps in somebody's career, whether it is through apprenticeship, whether it's to go to college. I suppose the end goal is that every student in the school could have an external mentor, which would be something spectacular. And I think we will see how powerful this is in a few ways. I can virtually guarantee you that no year seven student misses their mentoring session. I can guarantee you that the minute the mentors walk in, their shoulders will prick up, their eyes will look straight at them. There'll be that excitement that something you don't always get in education. We've talked about the idea of lowering the ladder in this podcast. It came up in episode five when we heard from Peter Squires, Carly Goldsmith's tutor at university, who helped her get on track to do a PhD. The mentoring project is another example, and it's an idea that's at the heart of Carly's work at the Crew Club. Now, I spoke to Peter, yeah, who you know talked about the sort of idea of lowering the ladder. Yeah. And when I think about the work you're doing at the Crew Club, I feel like it's doing the same thing in a way. You're like all the skills, all the things you've learned growing up and your experiences, they're all ending up in what you do here now. I think. Like, if you were to ask most people, and even if you were to ask not my family, not that they would really know why they thought this, but they'd be like, why are you not earning loads of money <laughs> working somewhere else? Um, because in the, in the sense that the whole narrative around social mobility is you get, a, you get yourself an education and essentially you move on. You move on to things that are better. You move on to things that pay better. You move on to things that have more esteem or have more value or are valued more in our society and I just don't feel like that at all I think that the most brilliant thing about my education is that I've been able to bring some of those skills back into the neighbourhood that I grew up in and use them in a way that's actually useful um, and that isn't so distanced from people's lives I mean one of the things I find when I was working in academia, and don't get me wrong, there is some really great work happening in academia and, it, and some of it is very important, but it, in so many ways it feels completely disconnected from the reality of people's lives. And I just didn't ever want to work like that because I like people and I like the people that I grew up around. And I know how experiences like those at the Thursday Night Disco or those at the youth club down the road when I was growing up played such a massive role in just my development as a, as a young person and how, how much they were important to me. 
And so it seemed logical to me in a way that that's what I'd do with the things I'd learn. I wouldn't kind of walk off into the distance and just do my own thing, but that I'd actually make it useful. Shall we go into the crew club and have a little look? Yep, let's do it. So I'm Darren, I'm the manager of the crew club and the co-founder of the crew club. As we come into the crew club, the first room we come across is the chill out room. It's kind of the games room. One of the places community is very apparent is at the crew club in the heart of Whitehawk. We've got the music studio. First room we come across is the control room where all the music. Like many communities that have been left behind or forgotten, who are deemed too hard a problem or hard to reach, to use language that's been used by some in the charity and funding world, the community has had to come up with its own ways to support from within. So young people can record everything from vocals to pretty much all the um, instruments. As you heard at the start of the episode, it was set up by Darren and Lorraine Snow in 1999, and it's a place for children, young people and families living in Whitehawk and the surrounding neighbourhoods to nurture and support their talents, strengths and dreams. Darren Snow was in the year above me at our local school, Stanley Deason, and in his own words was failed by the system. Like many, he's had to find his own way out of that, and he has, working his way through college and being awarded an MBE alongside his wife and co-founder, Lorraine Snow. The activities are really important because, you know, they do drama at secondary school. And a lot of the kids say, oh, I don't do it at school because people are watching me. And I said, well, people are watching you here, but that's different. These people know me. This place, really, where, like, drama, singing, playing the instruments, I'm hoping that we get them to do it, build their confidence, raise their self-esteem, so that they will walk into school and walk into a drama class and enjoy it like they do here. It's not just about here. It's, it's you know, the balance and it's encourage and, and just to encourage them to do things. Whether it's to play football, whether it's to do some art, whatever it is, it's encouraging them to just to be them. After the devastating attainment gap data between East Brighton pupils and the rest of the city was exposed back in 2019, the crew club stepped in straight away. Carly Goldsmith. We opened up a homework club and we also applied to a couple of funders to provide additional maths and English tuition for children who were then in year 11 and year 10. And that really did come as a result of the data. The crew club also run free early years preschool and primary school age sessions where kids can play, develop social relationships with peers and staff. It's a place where they can be themselves. She's always excelled in our reading. She's above average where she should be for our reading. And her writing is above average as well. This is Catherine, a Whitehawk parent, speaking about how her daughter benefits from the support of the crew club and what her dreams for the future are. She does keyboard a lot here at the crew club and she obviously knows how to play the keyboard. She'll tinker and play until she's worked out what it does. I've always told her she can be whatever she wants to be. I'm never going to hold her back from that. And at the moment, her thing is she wants to be a nurse. But then she also panics around blood. So I just keep telling her, don't 
worry about you can't do it. You can do it and you can do anything you want to do. You just got to put your mind to it. And we support you in doing that. One of my questions I had was about what you think is at the heart of this place. And I've asked other people that and nearly everyone says you. Yeah, I, su I suppose if a lot of people would say that, I wouldn't even say it's the building because our old tin hut was the heart of the crew club. I mean, it was awful. We had tiny little toilets and it was like a mess, but it was theirs and they respected it. And they do respect the building as much as they respect me. You've only got to have a look round and you can see nobody's graffitied everywhere except for my graffiti artist, of course, and I've paid them to do it. People used to say, Darren was always like the dad some of them didn't know. And I was like the mum or the nan of, you know, the kids who just needed someone to talk to. People used to say, you know, how, how do you make it work? Because people would come in here and they'd see young people and they'd say, but if they went, I don't know, down the library or somewhere else, they wouldn't be as well behaved. How do you do it? And I said, but I don't know. And I really don't. I truly believe that no matter what qualifications you've got, you can't learn or be taught how to do it. It's here. And if you haven't got it here, and you don't really, really 100% care about what you're doing and who you're working with, then it's not gonna work. You have to let them know you care. They just want to be somewhere where they feel like they're wanted and there's many places where they're not wanted. No child is born to be horrid and, you know, thing. It's something what's happening in their lives and it could be anywhere. It could be on the school bus, it, it, it could be anything. So that's how we've always worked with them. You know, I'm here, if you need to talk, you need to talk. I feed energy off the kids and kids are so innocent. They are so innocent to so many things. You know, even when I was having my cancer treatment, I was here every day I could possibly be here. And if I wasn't, I'd be on FaceTime talking to them in these sessions. It was them that got me through. We need to care more for the children and young people in this country, not just our own children, and not just children from our own tribe. Every single child has the right to feel society cares about them, wants the best for them, and will defend their right to achieve their full potential. It shouldn't come with a price tag, and the very idea of a sink school is a national disgrace. It's time to stop blaming parents and young people for doing badly at school, and fix the system that fails them. Carly Goldsmith. I still speak to really young kids who are in secondary school at the club who feel like they're stupid, who feel like they're not going anywhere, who feel like they're in every bottom set going, who feel like the work's too difficult, who feel like they're not getting enough support, who feel at really young ages, 11 or 12, that this whole learning thing is not for them. And it absolutely kills me every time that happens because I've seen what my brother's lives have been like and don't get me wrong they're not they've not they're not necessarily been terrible or bad I'm not trying to say that 
but they've been very different in not having access to some of the opportunities that I had access to. It does something to people's souls, their hearts, their minds, that I think is so difficult to recover from. I want to remind you of something I said right at the start of the series. Take a bunch of kids, Carly, her brothers, me and mine. We all start off the same, but we won't end up the same. And so the fact that I see 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds coming into this building and saying to me, I hate school, I feel stupid, I feel thick, I feel like I'm never going to go anywhere. Someone is giving them that impression because they wouldn't just make that stuff up themselves. And some of the key people who might be giving them that impression is the way school is set up, the people that teach them, the culture in the school, the culture in the leadership. Because I can tell you something, I was not walking home or coming home from school every day and my family were not putting out my homework, praising me for all of my achievements at school, you know, encouraging me to do better at school. I got into the school and I just got left alone to get on with it. It was what was happening at school which was the deciding factor, not what was happening at home. And I don't think people understand that. And we're told all the time as a a campaign team, it's not about school, it's about what's happening at home. And the reason they don't understand why we are so, it is about what's happening at school. It is about the quality of teaching. It is about the expectation of teachers. It is about the culture in schools is because that was the only thing that was different in my case. I wanted to end this podcast in the hills and hollows of Whitehawk, at home with Carly, Asa and Ryan, where we chatted about the series and what it brought up. But just before that, a reminder from Asa of the appalling damage Brighton and Hove's education inequality and subsequent attainment gap does to young people. I just basically accepted that I wasn't going to get a top job. I accepted that whatever job I had to do, I had to do. I think most people I knew at that school, and I knew the half, the most of the school, I think there was two people in my year that we thought would get decent jobs, but the rest of us, we just accepted that very early in senior school, that we'd have to just, we'd have to be them, take them lesser jobs. And maybe we did think we were lesser people. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it, when it put it like that. So I'm hoping the podcast does a number of different things. I've never come across anything apart from Fred Netley's book, Holy Oak, that tells the story of Whitehawk from the perspective of the people that live there. So I think this is quite a unique piece of work, just from that point of view. I don't want to get too soppy, but I do want to thank you all for sharing all your stuff with me. Because I do realise it's not always easy to talk about this stuff. Mm. The fact you've trusted me to do this, it means a lot to me. It really does. Yeah, well, it's opened up eye wise as well, hasn't it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It really has. It's been a really interesting experience. I think it's been really interesting because I remember one of the times when we were at the club and we were recording and we kind of looked at each other and went, this is the first time we've ever talked about it. <laughs> oh. like school. Yeah. You know, school and stuff we all grew and we kids' books yeah, and exactly. this and that. Remember like, this, remember just, that? Yeah. It's made me feel a bit more about the community I lived in when I was younger than I live in. You know, it's made me feel a lot more about that. We never really thought about it before, have we? What happened when we were younger and all that bollocks. And doing this has made us think about stuff. And then it does make you think about all the people around here who actually haven't got a school to go to and mm. and it got it tough, you know? Mm. It makes me think about how bad it actually was. When I look back, you don't see it at the time, but how bad it actually was. 
And I think particularly, not in a weird way, but like particularly because I had a very different experience of school. Yeah, see, we never talked about that before, did we? No, never. And when, when you spoke about that and the opposite effect it must have had on you, yeah, yeah. that must have been one of the most difficult things for you to go into that school when you were from here yeah. and into all them people. You know what I mean? It must have been just as difficult as going to a, a rubbish school. Yeah. Do you know? And I think there's a lot of stuff all wrapped up in that and I think when you're a kid you don't really understand what the consequences and the repercussions of all of this stuff is going to be because you just go where you're told to go and that's sort of what happens I think it's only as an adult in my adult life that I've started to really understand properly what that meant but by that point it's so far behind you yeah, you sort just... of don't want to go do you fancy having a chat about school? you would be like, what the fuck? Why would we do that? You know, yeah, you you know that? So, well, I've got, I've got some feelings about it. That I oh, even when I'm coming like... over, you start feeling all nervous, don't you? You start thinking, oh, fucking hell, I've got to talk. And once you start talking, it just happens, doesn't it? It just yeah, rolls yeah. off your tongue. Yeah. Uh, so it's been, it's been a useful exercise from that point of view. I think it's been it's brilliant. It's been great therapy. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> For all of us, definitely. Yeah, indeed. That's it. But yeah, that's been good appreciate it. On the 1st of June, Class Divide met with the new leader of Brighton Hove Council, Bella Sankey, and the co-chairs of the Children, Families and Schools Committee, Jacob Taylor and Lucy Helliwell. After years of feeling as if we'd been trudging through mud, and at times like we'd been gaslighted by both councillors and council officers responsible for education, the meeting felt like a breath of fresh air, like a possible turning point. Why? because they listened to us, and despite being new in their jobs, they had all listened to this podcast and had a deeper understanding of the issues at hand and how we might fix them. And they all said that they don't need to be convinced anymore that they get it. But the proof will be in the pudding. We're pushing for free transport for all Whitehawk kids and direct buses to the two nearest schools. We're also pushing for serious changes to school admissions and catchment areas. We know there's going to be some tricky work to do to make these things happen, but it's time for action, not more strategies akin to rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So we'll keep you updated via our Twitter, Facebook and newsletter, and you can sign up to these on our website, classdivide.co.uk. So what happens next? You might be thinking, how can I help? Well, here's a few ideas. Share the series, tell your friends about it and about Class Divide, especially if they live in or near Brighton. To change things, we're going to need a groundswell of support, not just from parents, but from anyone who wants Brighton to really live up to its name as an equitable, inclusive city. Talk about advantage, even though it's sometimes uncomfortable, and challenge yours and others' perceptions of some of the areas and people who have shared their stories in this series. And if your child goes to one of those more advantaged schools, maybe write a letter to the head and governors telling them what you think and that you'd like to see change. We're going to be hosting a couple of online events over the coming months, one for listeners who want to find out more about getting involved or maybe have an idea for help, and another specifically for teachers and others working in education. If you'd like to come along, please sign up for our newsletter to find out more. We'll have the usual reaction episode next week, but there's also one more core episode to come over the summer. Simon, my twin brother and the producer of this series, is going to be working with some of the young people at the Crew Club, helping them become sound explorers, sharing the sounds and sonic creativity of Whitehawk with the world. And I can't wait to hear what they do together. And just before I get to the thank yous, I wanted to ask you again for your support for the Crew Club. Class Divide wouldn't exist without them, 
and many, many lives, including mine, have been enriched by the work of Darren, the Rain, and the rest of the team. So please head over to crewclub.co.uk and hit the donate button and give them what you can. I know a bunch of kids and adults who will be eternally grateful if you do. When I set out to make this series, I knew it would be complicated. I've tried to balance the urgent and anger-inducing need for change in our very unequal education system, alongside an understanding that you don't change people's minds by shouting at them. I hope I've succeeded at that, and if you've made it this far, thank you. I know from the many supportive messages we've received that the series has been a challenging listen for some. I must thank all the people that have given up their precious time and energy to share their stories, expertise and wisdom with me. The series wouldn't exist without you all. But a particular thanks must go to the crew club and to Carly and her brothers. It's their story that really brings home the difference a good education can make to the futures of children, even when they're all living under the same roof. And Carly has also been an invaluable supporter of the making of this programme, offering her time and insight whenever I've needed it. I also need to thank Eve Streeter, who has the title of exec producer in the credits, but to be honest, she's been so much more than that. The biggest thing she's done is help me believe I can actually make this kind of thing. So thank you, Eve, for helping to fix some of the damage done in my school years. I have to thank my brother Simon, who, like me, left school with very little to show. He's taken my words and the raw-sounding interviews and turned them into something beautiful. I feel so lucky to have had him working on this with me. I also want to thank Julie at Necessity. She maybe doesn't realise how big a deal it was when she agreed to give us a small pot of money to help us make this series. It's been the most important project of my life because it's super rare for people from my background to be making this kind of work. Working class stories, not told through a middle class lens. If you're a funder, please take a leaf out of Necessity's book, who kept the process simple and trusted us to do good work. Music in the series was kindly donated by Olivia Aleri, Marja Newt, Room, Neil Hale, Salvatore Macatante, Polly Paws, Minor Pieces, Clarice Jensen, Shida Shahibi, Max de Wardner, Simon James, Rutger Hodemakers, Toy Drum, Trams, Benjamin Harrison, and the official body. I also need to thank the Crew Club, Daniel Nathan, Alex at Fat Cat Records, Colin at Castles in Space, and Jimmy Berlianto for their help and support. Finally, the biggest thank you has to go to my partner, Emily. Over the last two years, I've been completely consumed by making this series to the point where I've not always been the most present of people. Emily's had to listen to the rants, the crazy ideas, the hours of unedited interviews, and the moments when I thought it was all rubbish. And she supported me through all of it. Thank you, Emily. So that's it for the main programmes. Until next time, I'll see you next week for the last reaction episode. I'm